Welcome to Music History Monday for November 8th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Maximilian Stadler, Witness to History. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on November 8, 1833, 188 years ago today, of the Austrian pianist, composer, and Benedictine monk, Maximilian Stadler. Born on August 4, 1748, in the Austrian city of Melk, Abbe Stadler died in his adopted city of Vienna. Witnesses to History We contemplate witnesses to history, who I'm going to categorize as chroniclers and bystanders. Chroniclers would be those individuals who, advertently or inadvertently, were witness to historical events which they then reported firsthand. For example, John, or Jack, Silas Reed, 1887-1920. Reed was an American journalist, poet, and communist activist. A prominent World War I war correspondent, Reed was in Petrograd, St. Petersburg, immediately before, during, and after the Russian Revolution, which he witnessed as a member of the revolutionary inner circle. His book, Ten Days That Shook the World, published in 1919, remains, despite Reed's parochial political leanings, a riveting first-hand account of the October Revolution. Then there's the American journalist and war correspondent William Shiver, 1904-1993. As the European bureau chief for CBS, Shirer was headquartered in Vienna and was a first-hand witness to the Anschluss, the Nazi annexation of Austria, on March 11, 1938. He reported the Munich Agreement and Hitler's occupation of Czechoslovakia. Having moved his headquarters to Berlin, he witnessed Hitler's rallies and reported Germany's invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939. When the Hitlerian horde invaded Western Europe in the spring of 1940, Shiver was there. As a foreign war correspondent, he was embedded with German troops and reported firsthand on the German Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War. He was with the German army as it closed in on Paris and, in one of the greatest scoops of all time, managed to report the German armistice with France to the American people before it had been announced to the German people. Oh, here's how that happened. Hitler had ordered all foreign journalists back to Berlin. He wanted the armistice covered and reported only by his own propagandistic Nazi press cronies. Shirer got word that the foreign correspondents were to be rounded up. 
So early in the morning on June 22, 1940, he snuck out of his hotel and hitched a ride, quote, with a German officer who despised Hitler, unquote, to campaign where the armistice was to be signed. He watched and wrote, quote, I am but 50 yards from Hitler. I have seen that face many times at the great moments of his life. But today, it is a fire with scorn, anger, hate, revenge, triumph." Shirer phoned in his report from Paris to the CBS office in Berlin, where his call was patched through to New York. The German authorities did not know that Shirer had been on site, and they additionally assumed that his report would be recorded in New York for later prime time broadcast, which was standard operating procedure. They did not know that Shirer had previously arranged with CBS to broadcast his phone call live. And that's how William Shirer scooped the world. Such journalistic antics did not sit well with the Nazi propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels. Shirer was tipped off that the Nazi state police, the Gestapo, were building an espionage case against him, an accusation that would have carried the death penalty. It was time to skedaddle, which Shirer did. He returned to New York in December of 1940. But he went back to Germany in 1945 to witness and report on the Nuremberg trials. I witness chroniclers of history. Much of what we know about the horrors of the Holocaust and the camps was written by eyewitnesses. Anne Frank, 1929 to 1945. Elie Wiesel, 1928 to 2016. Victor Frankel, 1905 to 1997. And Primo Levi, 1919 to 1987. As the Moscow correspondent for the Washington Post, David Remnick, born 1958, and since 1998 the editor of The New Yorker, was an eyewitness to the breakup of the Soviet Union. Remnick chronicled the breakup in his book, Lenin's Tomb, The Last Days of the Soviet Empire, 1993. The book is superb and provides a fitting historical bookend to John Reed's Ten Days That Shook the World. Some eyewitnesses to history are not so much chroniclers as they are bystanders. They just seem to show up all the time, like such fictional characters as Winston Groom's Forrest Gump and Woody Allen's Zelig. The Abbe Maximilian Stadler was a bit of both, a part-time chronicler and full-time shower-upper. He was probably the only person to have befriended all of the greats of Viennese classicism, Joseph Haydn, Wolfgang Mozart, Ludwig van Beethoven, and Franz Schubert. His name is encountered everywhere in the literature, but more often than not, in passing. For example, in September of 1825, the English violinist, 
organist and conductor Sir George Smart, 1776 to 1867, visited Beethoven in Vienna. Now, five months before, on March 21, 1825, Smart had conducted the London premiere of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and was anxious to meet the great man himself and to talk about the symphony. Smart's timing was excellent as he had the opportunity to hear Beethoven's newly completed string quartet in A minor, Opus 132, privately performed. We read from Sir George's journal, quote, Friday, September 9th, 1825. We went to McKetty's music shop. Mr. Carl Holtz, a good violin player and Beethoven's one-time assistant, came in and said that Beethoven had come from Baden this morning. At 12, I took Ferdinand Ries, Beethoven's friend and student, to the Hotel Wildmann, the lodgings of Mr. Schlesinger, the music seller or publisher, from Paris, as I understood from Mr. Holtz that Beethoven would be there. And there I found him. He received me in the most flattering manner. There was a numerous assembly of professors to hear Beethoven's new quartet, bought by Mr. Schlesinger. This quartet is three quarters of an hour long. They played it twice. The four performers were Schuppenzig, Holtz, Weiss, and Linke. It was most chromatic, and there is a slow movement entitled Praise for the Recovery of an Invalid. This would be the famous Heiliger Danke song, the song of thanksgiving. Beethoven intended to allude to himself, I suppose, for he was very ill during the early part of this year. He directed the performers and took off his coat, the room being warm and crowded. A staccato passage, not being expressed to the satisfaction of his eye, for alas, he could not hear, he seized Holtz's violin and played the passage, a quarter tone too flat. Sunday, September 11th. I returned to Schlesinger's at the Wildmann, where there was a larger party than the previous one. Among them was the Abbe Stadler, a fine old man and a good composer of the old school, to whom I was introduced. When I entered, Misters Karl Czerny, Schuppenzig, and Linke had just begun the trio Opus 70 of Beethoven, after which the same performers played Beethoven's trio Opus 79. Then followed Beethoven's quartet, the same that I heard on September 9th." Unquote. Well, there you have it. A passing mention of Stadler. As usual, when something musically important was happening in Vienna at the time, he was there. Whether he actually stayed to hear Beethoven's music performed is another matter. It's something we'll discuss in just a bit. Stay or not stay, he was on extremely close terms with Beethoven, and his name turns up constantly in Beethoven's conversation books of this period. Abbe Maximilian Stadler, 1748-1833. Maximilian Johann Karl Dominic Stadler entered the Benedictine Monastery in Melk Abbey 
1766 at the age of 18. He served as a Benedictine monk, then a prior, then as abbot at monasteries in the Austrian towns of Lilienfeld and Kremsmünster. Positions in Linz, taken up in 1791, and Vienna, taken up in 1796, followed. In 1816, at the age of 68, he retired from the church to devote himself entirely to music. You bet, music. He was a talented kid, and his Benedictine education was heavily skewed towards music. He was a choir boy and studied violin, harpsichord, organ, and composition, and he developed some high-end skills along the way. As an abbot, meaning the chief of a monastery, he cultivated not just religious music, but secular music as well. He sponsored performances of operas by, among other composers, Antonio Salieri, 1750 to 1825, and Giovanni Paisiello, 1740 to 1816. As a composer, Abbe Stadler's primary focus was on vocal music, in particular German-language sacred music. His oratorio, The Liberation of Jerusalem, composed in 1813, was performed widely and, according to the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, quote, established his reputation internationally, unquote. His music was published by a number of firms in Vienna, including that of Anton Diabelli. Along with Franz Schubert, Karl Czerny, Johann Nepomuk Hummel, the 12-year-old Franz Liszt, Ignaz Moscheles, and others, Stadler was one of the 51 leading composers asked to write a variation on a waltz by Anton Diabelli, which Diabelli published together as an anthology. Beethoven was asked to contribute a variation as well. He contributed not just one variation, but 33 variations, collectively known today as Beethoven's Diabelli Variations, Opus 120. After Mozart's death, it was Abbe Stadler who not just helped Mozart's widow, Constanze, to organize and catalog her husband's music, but who completed a still undetermined number of Mozart's fragments and sketches. It is an indication of the affection and respect with which Stadler was held by the musical community at the time that he was permitted to do something no one else could, and that was disparage Beethoven's music. Yes, Beethoven biographer Alexander Thayer fills us in. Quote, Among Beethoven's intimate friends was Abbe Stadler, an old man and an old-fashioned musician the horizon of whose aesthetic appreciation was marked by the death date of his friend Mozart. He used to call Beethoven's music, quote, pure nonsense, unquote. He used to leave the concert room whenever a composition by Beethoven was to be played. It does not appear that Beethoven ever took umbrage at his conduct. Karl Holtz, telling Beethoven in February 1825 that, as usual, Stadler had left the room when an overture by Beethoven was about to be played, added, 
he is too old. He always says when Mozart has reached, more I cannot understand." Unquote. For Stadler, Mozart did indeed represent the very pinnacle of musical art. Stadler had the priceless opportunity to hear Mozart perform and improvise countless times. Now, for our information, Mozart's improvisations were so remarkable that some of his contemporaries doubted that they were improvised at all. It is an issue Stadler himself addressed. Quote, his, Mozart's, improvisations were as well ordered as if he had them lying written out before him. This led several to think that, when he performed an improvisation in public, he must have thought everything out and practiced it beforehand. Johann Albrechtsberger, 1736-1809, composer, organist, and briefly teacher of Beethoven, thought so too. But one evening they met at a musical soiree. Mozart was in a good mood and demanded a theme of Albrechtsberger. The latter played him an old German popular song. Mozart sat down and improvised on this theme for an hour in such a way as to excite general admiration and show by means of variations and fugues in which he never departed from the theme that he was a master of every aspect of the musician's art." Unquote. One more Stadler-related anecdote, yet another example of the esteem and affection with which he was held by the close-knit Viennese musical community. Alexander Thayer writes, quote, Beethoven and Abbe Stadler once met at Steiner's publishing house. About to depart, Beethoven knelt before the Abbe and said, Reverend Sir, give me your blessing. Stadler, not at all embarrassed, made a sign of the cross over the kneeling man and, as if mumbling a prayer, said, Nutz nicht, so schatz nix. If it does no good, twill do no harm. Beethoven thereupon kissed his hand amid the laughter of the bystanders." Unquote. Adio, good Abbe. We can only wish that as an intimate of Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert, you would have taken up your pen and written a detailed memoir. But still, we thank you for the friendship and unerring spirit of goodwill you extended to these good people. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by the Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com. <laughs>